Welcome to A New Nation, the podcast discussing the ideas that matter. I'm Nathan Sparling. I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host today, the wonderful Nick Ward. Hello, I'm your co-host today and every day. Don't be finding a replacement. <laughs> I don't know who else you've been getting on here. Well, actually, like you've it. had someone else co-host with you in the podcast only once. Yes. But, um, I, was, I was unable to attend when I was on holiday during COVID. Don't tell anyone. Like the first part of COVID, not this part, where the part where people yeah. were allowed to go on holiday. Yes. Nathan wasn't breaking any rules. <laughs> Don't think for you. No. Don't you ever think you're irreplaceable. Oh, oh look and at that voice that. of authority coming from above. We've got and, a special guest. <laughs> and that, listeners, is our special guest. She's back for round two. She couldn't get enough of us the first time. We're delighted to be joined by the wonderful Annie Gunner Logan. Good evening, gentlemen, and hello. Hello and thank you so much yeah, for coming back and joining us. It's exciting. We're going to be digging into some of the news stories of the day and we're going to be talking about one of my favourite subjects, I'm sure one of your favourite subjects as well, Annie, which is the social care review and some of the very exciting things that are recommended in it. Um, but before we go any further, we need to make our usual disclaimer that uh, the opinions that you hear on this podcast are our own personal opinions and not those of our employers in any way. In fact, they might not even be our own personal opinions, if we're being honest with you, because quite often we just take the opposite viewpoints just for the good bit of chat and um nathan is known for just being quite difficult and <laughs> not agreeing with me sometimes and i think he did it deliberately how dare you well you know these things happen i think sometimes you're being contrarian but i'm sure you won't be today well i'm sure i will be knowing what's on topic um coming up but we're going to chat first off uh, the big news of of the week um, and the big news of every week since we started this podcast is around um, COVID-19. And we had two very different statements this week. One from Boris Johnson, who is clearly keen to get the hairdressers open um, as soon as possible. And then another from Nicola Sturgeon, who seemed by today's um, statement equally as keen to get the hairdressers open, but not necessarily as quickly um, as the hairdressers in England will be opening. Uh, Nick, are we going too slow in Scotland? Um, I don't know, is the answer. Um, but I think that definitely in her statement to Parliament yesterday, which would be... What day is it today? Tuesday, Wednesday? Was yesterday. Tuesday. Yes, so to Tuesday. Um, I think she definitely realised that she hit the wrong tone because as you pointed out today, she was much more upbeat and positive where as yesterday in Parliament, there was definitely, I think the accusation from Lewis Davidson was that um, give us some hope, Nicola, you know, um, instead of being so miserable about it. So I think there's definitely a bit of a, of a spur. I, I hope that with her decision not to publish dates, which, you know, she says... I could give you dates, but I'd be making them up. I think that's very fair and transparent with her. But I hope she takes that opportunity then to keep things under review and to be flexible because we know that the rates of transmission, not transmission, of infection in Scotland are lower than the rest of the UK. Um, and we know that we've actually got, in some respects, a better track and trace system operating up here. So I hope that we we take those advantages and we use them to allow our businesses to open as quickly as possible um, in a safe way. Really? And Annie, some of the big news uh, that came out today was around the reopening of sorts of care homes um, for people um, to be able to go and visit their loved ones. I know you've talked about that a lot on social media. Is that good news? 
Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's very good news. Um, and I've got kind of two angles on this one, uh, Nathan, because I represent care providers, obviously, who are going to have to implement this guidance uh, in Scotland. Uh, and my mum is in a care home <laughs> in England. Uh, so I'm keeping an eye on the guidance on both sides of the border uh, for that reason. Um, in, in Scotland, we've been involved uh, in drafting some of this. Uh, some of our members have been looking at it. It's really, really tricky. I mean, I think, you know, as, as a relative, I absolutely understand and share the, the huge frustration and distress, actually. You know, it's not just frustrating. It's, it's really distressing not being able to see your mum, you know, or your dad or your, or your spouse or whatever, um, you know, for months and months and months on end. Um, on the other hand, you've got care homes who have been put in really uh, an absolutely impossible position where they are being told very, very clearly to reduce footfall into the home. Uh, and don't, don't forget, you know, that some of them are, uh, you know, they're being prosecuted. There's a real risk of, of public prosecution here. All deaths now in care homes are being invested uh, investigated by the fiscal, um, you know, and huge pressures to uh, to reduce the footfall because of that. And yet, at the same time, they're being asked to open up. So it's very, very complex for them. Um, and our position uh, for on behalf of care homes has always been, you know, yeah, we'll do this, but we, we need some support to do it. We need some support to do it. So I think we've now got to a point where uh, there's a bit more of a meeting of minds on this. Um, between the relatives, the care home operators, Scottish government, uh, the public health partners, and I think the the guidance that's been um, that's been issued this week uh, is kind of quite a positive step forward. But you know, we, we just have to go kind of quite carefully around this. It's it's hugely hugely distressing all around, really. And Nicola called it traumatizing today, which I thought was yeah, um, which is uh, hit the nail on the head for me. I think not. Not that I'm someone that's been waiting to go and visit anyone in the care home, but knowing people in, that have. I think in yeah. some ways it's been traumatizing for all parties involved. Yeah. I think that's what makes it really yeah. hard. Like I think it's been yes. traumatizing for the people in the care homes to not get to see their loved ones. It's been traumatizing for loved ones who can't get to see the, their people that they love. It's also in some ways been traumatizing for care homes who've mm -hmm. come under real conflicting pressure. Exactly well, like the staff, especially yeah, the staff. You know, and like our own example is, is that we've had lots and lots of people demanding, insisting that they can come see that they're their family member. And we've had to say no. And we've had to be really, really strict on that, even when they've complained to MSPs and they've went and, you know, tried to get local authorities to pressure us into doing it. And, you know, we've been in the situation where we have to say to people, are you asking us? like a local authority, we said to a local authority, are you asking us to break the Scottish government's guidelines? Because that's what you're doing. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it's been really difficult because I think as Annie was saying, the support hasn't necessarily been there. And even with this publication of this new guidance that came out today, um, you know, we'd requested that um, we got advanced sight of it because we knew that people would be mm. calling up and asking us about what our plans were straight away. And, and we were told no. And that's not working in partnership because that means that when we were getting phone calls today, our response was, don't know, we have to wait until <laughs> we've read it. Like we have to go and like get ourselves together and figure it out, um, which I just don't think is, a, I just don't think it's the best way to do things. It's not the best way to do things. And I mean, you know, speaking very personally, I haven't seen my mum since January the 5th, 2020. Right. So she's, she's 92 and that's the longest I've ever been 
uh, without seeing her. And perversely, you know, this is the point in her life at which she would probably most like to have the comfort of her relatives around her. She's not had anybody uh, there at all since before Christmas. Um, so I'm hoping that at least we'll, it's my sister who's the kind of, who will be the designated relative, um, because in England you're only allowed one kind of person, I think in Scotland it's two, mm. um, but in Scotland it's only one, so my sister will do the duty for that, just, you know, because she's the nearest. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's extraordinary, really. And I think one of the things, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about social care in a, in a little while, but I think one of the things it's brought home to everybody is, um, you know, the, how hollow it is when people say, you know, when, when you're in a care home, it is your home. You know, this is your home. You know, well, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> Very clearly, it's not. Um, it's, a, it's a group home. It's, a, it's um, a, a congregate setting, as we call it. And so you don't get to call the shots. It's not, you know, it's not your home. Yeah. Um, and that will be one of the consequences, uh, you know, the kind of legacy of this that will live with us. And we'll have to we'll have to address that. And as part of the social care review that we're going to be talking about later on, you know, there, there will be um, a, a, a significant improvement program around care homes, but also a revision of the care home contract. And I do wonder if we need something in it uh, around this. Yeah, a bit of future proofing now that we know that yeah. this kind of thing is possible. Yeah. One of the, one of my pet bugbears about care homes, if I'm just gonna, where's my soapbox? Uh, so we can begin. Is that um, the Scottish government throughout this keeps saying um, completely ridiculous, made up statistics because they keep saying 99% of people in care homes have now had the vaccination, which is not true. What they mean is 99% of people in old age care homes mm. have had the vaccination, yeah. and actually, when you look at care homes for people with learning disabilities or autistic people they haven't had it and you're just completely erasing that population once again and you know we talked last week so I won't go into it again about what the results of that are but you know the morbidity rates show that you know you're picking and choosing and you're perpetuating a myth that when we talk about social care or when we talk about care homes, we're only talking about old people. And that's something that I think we really need to challenge as well. And hopefully, hopefully when we get to the, that conversation about the social care review, we can dig into that a little bit because I do think it leads to some pernicious yeah. outcomes. Well, if you if you if if we're kind of queuing up to say what's what we're finding annoying at the moment <laughs> about all of this then I shall push my way to the front of the queue and say one of the things that I find incredibly, uh, not just annoying, but upsetting, actually, is this idea that somehow there's a competition going on, mm. uh, you know, between the four uh, parts of the UK. We say, we've vaccinated more old people than you have, you know, because, you know, in effect, what people are saying is, you know, we're, we're actually quite pleased that people are dying faster somewhere else mm. because it makes us look good. You know, and, and some of the senior politicians who've been in, engaging in this, uh, in this kind of contest about who's the best at vaccinating, I, you know, it just leaves a very, very bad taste in my mouth. On the other hand, I am getting my vaccination on Friday. Yay! <laughs> You're going to be immune. That's not how vaccinations work, by the way. But still, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the other, the other, the other news this week uh, was the the revelation about just how effective this mm. vaccination is. Yes. Um, you know, so one of the one of the consequences of that, I hope, is that lots of people who might have been a bit kind of uh, equivocal about whether they wanted it or not will actually now get go and get it. You know, th we might see the kind of refusenik uh, mm. numbers going down because obviously it is absolutely worth getting if it's going to keep you out of the hospital and keep you alive. You know? And there yeah. doesn't and seem and to it... be swathes of people refusing it. 
from what I can think and see from the data. Uptake seems to be very high. I suppose mm. one of the other things about it, which which I think is great, however, it's very high unless, until you go to ethnic minority communities, mm. and particularly in parts of England, we've got real areas where uptake is is shockingly low, mm-hmm. and there's been having to be real attempts, particularly in BME communities, mm-hmm. to to build confidence in it. And I, I totally get why people wouldn't be confident in it when you've you know consistently been lied and mistreated by the governments for for generations. What like. I can totally see why you'd be like, well, maybe we'll just opt out of this. Um, but obviously we support them to do that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the high, that the high efficiency, I can never say this word. Efficacy. If, if it, it sounds like you're saying efficacy, like it's ethical, but it's efficacy. not spelled like that. Efficacy. Spelled, say it again. F- efficacy. Efficacy. Why are you swearing at me, mate? <laughs> I didn't do anything to you. <laughs> I, think, I think that's efficacy. <laughs> Annie, don't get us an adult warning. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. This episode is not suitable for children. Yeah. It, well, it's not really suitable for children. No. But the um, what? But that has... Um, Oh, I don't know what I was going to say now. Oh, that has like in in the government's defence, the down south government's defence. You know that shows that their strategy of of prioritising the first dose over mm. the second dose and lengthening yeah. out the period of before you get the second dose was the right strategy. So yeah. that must be nice for them. And it was a and bit us. of egg on the face of uh, Macron, who said that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine wouldn't work. Well, he just had a bit of a hissy fit, didn't he? <laughs> him, him and our European pals, just a little bit of a, like, they all <laughs> need to take a chill pill and um, calm out. Do you know what we also haven't talked, what, what we don't have on the list to talk about, but I would love to talk very briefly about, if I may just stick something on, Nathan. Um, he's giving me a look, but I'll just do it anyway. Is uh, Boris Tunnels, Boris Bridges between oh us God. and well, let's, Ireland. Well, let's we stick on COVID. Annie is emoting right now, so let's go straight over to Annie <laughs> Gunner Logan to give her opinion. Let's, let's stick on COVID and then we'll move to <sighs> tunnels because I think we could be quite some time talking about tunnels. And there was two things that we needed to get in to talking about COVID first. One is who's looking forward to going to London to be in a club on the 21st of June, um, because that is totally not possible. I can't believe the number of people that have now invited me to London to have my birthday party, because my birthday's on the 22nd of June. Um, Wow. (laughs) So if I was allowed to travel to London, then maybe I would go and party in a club. Not that I think I would actually want to be. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately my um, my beloved's uh, birthday is on the nineteenth of June, so oh, we're missing out again, missing out again. <laughs> um, and that that was the, the more frivolous angle um, that I wanted to talk about. But we've not talked about the election um, that. People have been calling f- to be postponed um, because we'll still be under or close to lockdown as as um, as we we would be up until almost election day itself. And Nick, you've got lots of views on this that I am going to love um, disagreeing with you on. So well, why you don't have... you kick off with well, great. your position? I've got lots of views on everything that you disagree on, mate. So it's fine. <laughs> I suppose just starting with this one, 
Um, you summed it up best there yourselves. People will still be in lockdown. People will not be able to go see their family or loved members. Their society that we live in will be under severe restrictions and we've had no reasonable form of campaigning except by the party and government who has a daily briefing. Oh. And when you come around and say that's about COVID, I am sorry, but so many of the questions today were about the Alex Salmon thing. And right, actually so that kind of exposure is really, really powerful. So like any sensible democracy and any mature democracy, we should say that actually the circumstances mean that we should delay this election for what two months three what? months until we can have a legitimate campaign did it's you see being what? democratic and being did, fair mate did you see did you see donald trump and joe biden postponing that what what was one of the biggest elections in our time for covid no what you saw was the sensible politician doing things virtually and campaigning virtually in new and innovative ways car park rallies i'd be quite happy to jump anything. in a car and i bet I bet part. you can find. I bet you can find people died because of the election. I bet you can find that. I bet there were people who attended rallies, who stood in lines for hours to vote in some areas, who died. Now, obviously, it was democracy. I'm so glad that they that they took part in that democratic process. But we are in a situation where we have a choice, and that choice can be to have a slight delay to allow, a, to allow a fair and transparent democratic process where political parties can campaign and vote. Do you know what I think the problem is? I think the problem is, and this is where I'm going to get a bit anti-SMP for a second, oh, well, that that's you're all worried that you're all worried, I'm pointing at Nathan because like, you know, he's my, he's my SMP mate, that you're all worried that the shine is coming off your your That's... fancy wagon, the wheels are getting rattling. There's no proof people for are that. Noticing, people are noticing that the system that you have ruled over actually has massive holes in it. And you're worried that the longer that that goes on for, the more that will affect your chances at the election. And do you that know what? That's not democratic nonsense. either, pal. That is nonsense, Nick. Like, see, see if the SNP and the Scottish government had, had chosen to postpone the election, people like you would be saying that was dictatorial and she was trying to keep herself in power for longer than she needed to. The problem here is not that the election is going to go ahead on the on the 6th of May. It's that there's no opposition to come up against the SNP, Nick. And one of the problems is the political party that you're a member of. I mean, who's the leader? We don't even know. The reason you can't campaign is because you don't have a leader. Because we're going through a democratic process, but you obviously don't understand well, how democracy works. Well, up, so because used. we do things online now. So used to just ruling the roost, and no one will challenge you. Annie, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt your uh, your ding dong for a minute. Um, I've, I've got the. I've got a lot of sympathy with this idea that you know other countries have done it, so why can't we? But I, I think the people who uh, who ought to um, whose views ought to be most consulted about this are the people who are actually going to work the election. So the people who are going to be staffing the polling places and the people who are going to have to sit there and count the votes because those are the people who will who would be most at risk if you think if you're kind of seeing this as a kind of COVID risk for people gathering together then those are the people who will be gathering together so I don't know if anybody's asked them well we uh, but that's that, that's where I would start I mean personally for me not having rallies and not having people at the door is great, great. hooray I think every not election. having to not having to <laughs> knock on doors is great, um, yeah. but we do know that there has been a change made to to the counting of votes, and I think that is in um, in thinking about the people that would be counting them. Absolutely, like you say, Annie, the yeah. decision has been made that there should be absolutely no overcount 
overnight voting. Um, and that's been done on the basis of safety for the, the people that will be working in the polling stations on the day and then, you know, limiting the numbers for, for, for where, where and how it will be counted. Um, I mean, I'll, give you, I'll, give, I'll give you another thing that's on my mind. I mean, you've asked me to come and talk about the social care review. So uh, that's, that's not really going to be able to kind of take off in any way uh, in terms of implementation and us rolling up our sleeves and getting on with it until after the election. So, you know, let's, we need to get on with it. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to wait yeah, till Nick. June, July, August, September to get on with it because it's just kind of booting it off into the long grass and we'll all be waiting even longer for anything to happen. Mm. Um, I mean, I have some sympathy with Nathan's point there about, you know, that this, this sort of illusion that the outcome of this election is in any way <laughs> in, in doubt. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's... Oh, there is that, some things. Maybe that's the point, though. It's whether it's in doubt or not. So that kind of shows, like Nathan's, like, "Oh, you guys just don't want to do it." Like, actually, all we're saying is that if we delay it just a little bit, then we'll have two positive outcomes. One positive outcome is that people who have to work the election will be healthier and safer, and the second outcome is that we will get to have a more robust democratic process. But we can have a robust democratic process. And I think I've got some sympathy in your argument that um, it costs a lot of money to have a robust democratic process at the moment because you can't use volunteers to go and leaflet. Um, so I do it's think good. that... Good. Yeah, well, one, good for <laughs> the environment. Good for the environment. But, you know, let's... let's ask the Royal Mail to deliver everyone's leaflets for free rather than charging £60,000. Well, the um, biggest way to change someone's opinion about how they're going to vote in, the elect in an election, and the only thing that's been proven to really work, if we're being honest, is face-to-face, door-to-door canvassing. Um, but it, we've not done any um, we've not done any analysis on how meetings like this and political parties across the spectrum have been holding online meetings. Um, yeah, but they're online meetings for like the selectorate, aren't they? Like they're, they're online meetings for people who are already engaged and who are party members normally. Like I, I honestly believe that. In the current Douglas, I don't think Douglas Ross's live streams have been mostly party members. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah never, never mind COVID. I mean, I've, I've lived in Edinburgh for more than 30 years, and I have never, ever had a single person show up at my door to discuss this with me, ever. They've probably put you as an against, Danny. They've probably, like, marked you down on the board as against. And, like, Do a not attend. It's just been the same. <laughs> Because it's because I w if they did come, I would engage them in conversation, and then that would be it for the evening. You know, they'd never get away. <laughs> when I when I when I was a councillor in Islington North, obviously we used to go uh, door knocking often. Like every week, we would go door knocking because that's how it worked, and it was very successful. But we go door knocking with Jeremy quite often, Jeremy Corbyn, and that was a friggin' nightmare because the first door he would knock on like he because he never says no so he'd go in he'd sit down he'd have like a glass of like wine we're all like knocking on doors being like are you going to do this getting out the vote jeremy's come out and says you know i had a great conversation with that one household and you're like yep this was really worth everyone's time thanks for that but you know it worked for him it worked for him but yeah it's um it's tricky it's tricky it worked for him well, it worked for him in the sense that he really? that he has a massive majority in Islington North and has been oh, right. there okay, okay. for a long time. Um, it, it didn't necessarily work for him in the <laughs> nationally. <Yeah. laughs> Definitely a lot more houses he needed to get around. A lot more houses. Yeah. <laughs>
And I'm not sure he got the same reception in like Bracknell, not Bracknell, that's a rubbish example, in like Blackpool as he got in, uh, in you know, Leafy, Tufnell Park. Mm. Um, well, I think we've we've probably spoken enough about the election. Um, so have we convinced you to change your mind, Nathan? No, you've definitely not convinced me. You've made me more resolute in my opposition. Well, that's, that's Annie, 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 is sympathetic. Annie is sympathetic to my position. Uh, so Seriously, I, though, is, 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 this, is this a serious question? You know, is there, is there, a, um, is there actually a, a prospect of this being delayed or is it just uh, people kind of making a noise? So I think it's people like Nick trying to make some noise. Um, <laughs> There's, there, there doesn't seem to me like there's any prospect of changing it because the presiding officer has now um, informed Parliament of when they will rise. Mm. Um, and that's usually a, the, the sort of official point of when, when that announcement is made is usually the official point um, that you would know. But there is some changes in the election law this year um, because Parliament is not being dissolved um, at all. So Parliament will still be um, sitting, but in recess until the 5th of May, the day before the election. And that's because of the ongoing COVID um, pandemic and there might be a, a need to return um, for any urgent business. But ideally, that situation wouldn't, wouldn't occur. Will Nicola stop her daily um, propaganda briefings? Well, I don't agree that it's propaganda. You have agreed um, in the past. You can't change no, your position no, now. no. I think as I said, it was a, getting a bit too much having a daily briefing. It isn't a daily briefing now, as was pointed out the other day when Nicola said, I do this every day. And all the journalists said, no, you don't. You definitely don't do it on a Friday. Um, so it's not every day. Um, and I think it will get less um, and reduce and there'll be other people that are brought, brought into it. But you can't. Well, say, I think you should stop. You no, know, you can't say it's a propaganda machine when you've got Boris that does the exact same thing. And now the BBC invite every other party on to talk about what's been said in the briefing and don't allow any right of reply from the, the government. So it, the propaganda machine here is the opposition, not, not the government, I would say. So said every autocrat in the world. <laughs> like the propaganda machine is from the person that has an unlimited amount of time. They to don't. Stand up they don't. With the a BBC single camera. No, with a single camera on them as they talk. They like don't. that's the propaganda. That is, that's fake news, Nick. Well, it's not fake news, but okay, the BBC like, unlimited is maybe a bit strong, no, but like yeah. sometimes they cut away during the questions, but they've never cut away from her while she's speaking and giving. While she's speaking about what the people need to understand about COVID, Annie. Well, she could give well, that I'm just, to I'm just, I'm just wondering what, what, what Nick's solution, proposed uh, solution to this is. I mean, perhaps, perhaps she should kind of, you know, stand behind a screen. Would that help? Well, no, I think the proposed, if I'm honest, Annie, the proposed solution that I would say is that she should give it a regular briefing, but it should be to Parliament and it should be once or twice a week. And there she, sh there she should be subject to criticism, questions and challenge by elected representatives. I think that is a fair solution. But many people have said that they rely on that briefing um, to get the news and information about what restrictions are in place. And, and you know, people that don't watch Parliament or don't um, don't have an iPad that they can scroll on BBC News and, and they're reliant on the fact that that's shown on a BBC channel for half an hour on on key dates when when there are changes i, th I think there's something uh you know because this is such a um, here we go unprecedented situation right? i mean it is a global pandemic people are dying uh 
you know, it's there's leadership. This is leadership, you know, and this is about public leadership. So absolutely, uh, somebody having to be accountable to Parliament. I get all of that, but actually, this is about public visible leadership. Uh, which is about inspiring confidence in the population. Now you can you can argue about whether Nicola Sturgeon does that effectively or not, but the fact that she does it, I should I think shouldn't shouldn't be in question really. But but I think I think there was a time when it was entirely appropriate and it was what was needed. I I agree with that. I suppose my question is that if you're running up to a democratic election where this person is up for being voted in or out of power is it right to have the exact same system as you had for the last 12 months? I don't think it is because, you know, we have PERDA, we have lots of different rules that say we, that we actually... Don't, we don't have PERDA this year, actually. Well, okay, well, we normally would have PERDA. Lots of different rules that say that actually, unless we're very, very careful, the power of government can sway votes and opinions. And I, and I think this is an example of it. I, I do. I and think I, the, I, the point that, that Annie makes there is this is, this is unprecedented um, and we need we, we we can't wait six months um w- with having a lame duck government which would be essentially what it is as annie said nothing will be done would be done in six months it would be preparing for an election covid stuff if we can get an election to happen and a, gov- a new government elected and i'm sure every political party will put up as as good uh, and, and well fought a fight um, as as any in that election, and um, then we can get back to the work of the people of Scotland are asking for. Um, but what it seems to me like is we want to delay and create a lame duck government for for no purpose. It doesn't feel to me like that's what the people of Scotland want. So I don't I don't know why you think it'll be a lame duck government. Like it's the current government and it's going on. So I don't know why extending it by a month or two makes because it because they can't duck do government. anything. The, the, the well, programme for government is set out so that they can do things and then you're saying, well, let's delay it by a month or two. Well, as Annie pointed out, that means that the results of the social care review cannot be implemented because the legal elements that need to be passed in a bill will not be able to be done. There's lots of issues that would not be able to be brought forward. But, but you're, 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 you're contradicting yourself because a minute ago, you're not rolling your eyes. A minute ago, you were saying this is unprecedented and we need to it take is. unprecedented action. So when I suggest then an, an unprecedented you're like oh the functions of government can't function because the program for government will have run out what that's not how it works and you know that's well, not how it works well, i mean it is it's how it not works. how it works you're trying to create legalistic arguments well, I'm, I'm, why don't you just why don't you just say that actually we can have an election one can. month later no two we can months later. on the 5th of may on the 6th of may we can have an election just like every other country has had an election in the last year and um, well, they, if we are going to do that, then we need to take steps to make sure it's democratic, to make sure that it is transparent, we'll see, to make see sure that, that one party has an over dominant position to exploit. And I'm sure you would agree with that because you're a Democrat. Well, the, the only reason that one party has a uh, has has any more power is because they actually have a leader, Nick. Right. Um, so you're and a Democrat that, when it's convenient for you. Le- and no, your side no, that leader. No, 
that That's leader is being I'm, a leader. Um, I'm a Democrat when it favors me and my pals, but if it favors everyone else or the process, then democracy, really what we need is a strong leader. We need a strong leader. Sure. Where's Vladimir Putin? He's a strong so, leader. So far, so far, uh, so far the, only, the only people I've heard arguing about this one from one side or the other are the kind of politicos, really. So, you know, again, my question would be, what, what, uh, you know, what does anybody else think about it? Are they bothered about it or are they not bothered about it? I mean, um, yeah. I will tell you now that I have a cottage in the Highlands booked for the 25th of April, and it is much more of interest to me you know, <laughs> whether I'm going to get there or not than whether I can walk four minutes around the corner and put an X in a box, you know? Um, there's the kind of, I think there's a kind of um, political bubble mm. issue here that yeah. is, is, is maybe not really kind of resonating outside. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. If there's a huge kind of popular clamour to have the election uh, delayed, then then it would kind of make more sense to start considering it. I think there is a lot of news stories at the moment that are only relevant to the political <laughs> bubble on Twitter. Um, and talking about those types of stories, um, the transition, the the tunnel. The, the, oh. the four tunnel. Not where I thought you were going. <laughs> Not where I thought you were going, Nathan. <laughs> Completely irrelevant stories. The Boris Johnson's tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I kind of dig it. Like, I know that. Like, I just don't understand why it needs to be four tunnels. Like, dig it. Nick, Nick, you just said it's a tunnel and you dig it. Really? Seriously. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't wakey, even mean wakey. that. I didn't even mean it, Annie, but like, yeah, great, great. Great pun. Um, but like, if they all go to the Isle of Man and there's a little circle, and then nobody wants go to go to the Isle of Man in the first place. That's very rude. Like, to all and Isle of Man people, I don't know what that's called. Mancunians? That's people that live in Manchester. All the Isle of Man people that listen to this podcast, Nathan, that now hate us. And what I didn't understand is why don't you just build a tunnel from Stranraer to Northern Ireland rather than building a tunnel from Stranraer? To the Isle of Man and then back out because it avoids that really deep trench which is what they were stressing out about so there's like that really deep trench where they put like all the old nukes and shit oh, now we're ruined all <laughs> old nukes and stuff and they were stressing out about that so that it avoids that and also it kind of if you're if you're the UK government it kind of future proofs it against Scottish independence doesn't it because okay there's this one from like Scotland, but then there's also this one from England. So even if also they could just cement it up, (laughs) (laughs) just cement. We paid for this. Um, So even if Scotland were to go independent in the future, you still got the use of your Boris Tunnel. Oh, it's all a bit of a vanity project, Annie. Don't you think? Well, you see, I am so indescribably ancient that I remember a lot of these arguments um, about what we called the Channel. Back then, you know, the channel tunnel. Oh. When I when I when I was a girly, there was the Sea Link uh, ferry crossing, or there was no. Um, and then the, the the channel tunnel was proposed, and everybody thought it was a vanity project and a piece of nonsense. And you know, and and here we are today. Uh, but what what I don't kind of get about the Boris Tunnel is somehow this isn't really about easing transportation. This is somehow about solving the border problem, and I can't really understand that because the border is going to be there, whether there's a tunnel or whether there's a sea crossing or whether there's a bridge or whether there's people kind of going over on hang gliders. It really doesn't. <laughs> 
it makes, it makes absolutely no sense. Like it exactly. is completely exactly. illogical to solving that problem. But what you've got to do is like take it apart. So like, do you know what? Whatever that weird argument is, I don't really care. But like, or do you want to build a cool piece of infrastructure? Yeah, I'm into that. Let's build some train lines. But if you're like saying those train lines will somehow solve the border problems. Oh, exactly. The- so it's, it's a kind of, it's, 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 it's a solution to a completely different problem. Uh, yeah. rather, which is why I don't understand it. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great? No. Well, it would kind of be great. But again, you know, the, those of us of that vintage, we're still a little bit nervous going in the Channel Tunnel because we're always kind of worried that it's going to start to leak. <laughs> <laughs> the one time I've actually been in the Channel Tunnel, I was a bit like, oh, we're really deep now. Oh, there's a lot of ocean around us. Oh. And then my boyfriend at the time was like, can you just shut up, please? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> did, you dri- did you drive through or get the train? got the train oh yeah the, I, the only only time lived i lived literally like 10 minutes away by walking from st pancras and it was the only time that we ever were like let's go to france for the weekend on the tunnel and it cost you know when you think oh this will be really cheap and it cost so oh, no, it's a much well money. i got a return um a return ticket for like 60 pounds Oh, you did a better. Tell you, there's a, there's um there's a transport connection from Scotland which is gone now and is much missed in my opinion. Um, there, there used to be a ferry service, a passenger ferry service from Rasyth to Zeebrugge. Yeah. Um, and and you could take the car on it and you could have a nice meal and there were you get a nice cabin and then the interesting thing about Zeebrugge is only two hours from the Champagne region. So oh. there you go. And, um, for and they, couldn't make it, they couldn't make it work. They couldn't make it work financially. So it reverted to just for hauliers. Um, oh, you know, it was, it was no longer a kind of passenger ferry. So that, it, and it only ran for about two or three years, I think, before it went. But it was mm. kind of glory days of, of um, passenger transport to the continent mm. direct from Scotland. It was fantastic. Yeah, there was a lot. Well, mm. as a Pfeiffer, there was a lot of chat about how that should have brought lots of jobs and money to Fife. And then it <laughs> Because people got off the ferry at Rosyth and went, what? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> this is not Edinburgh. <laughs> no offence to anyone from Rosyth, but Dunfermline is definitely better. Well, you could tunnel, tunnel, tunnel under the fourth from, well, that's, uh, from, from that's Portobello a, to Kakodi. That, that's that would... a proposal. That's <laughs> yeah. the, the Green Party proposed a tunnel from Kirkcaldy um, to Leith. With a tram um, extension inside, with a, right? With a, I think, no, was there? Maybe. Um, but it was definitely a, a road, um, a road tunnel. And I thought that was a cracking idea. Like, I, I kind of think it is. The only thing is, I don't really want loads of more cars coming into the bottom of Edinburgh or spewing out at the well, bottom of the top. Technically the top of Edinburgh. Oh, sorry, the top, yeah. It's, I always think it's the bottom because it's at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> <laughs> no sense of direction talking Um, of things that make no sense shall we talk about the other big uh, (laughs) Scottish Parliament story uh, of of this week which is well I think it's a huge story and Nathan thinks it's sheer distraction no I don't Um, think it's distraction at all I think that nobody cares and probably tell people what it is (laughs) no we're trailing it we're building up it like excitement be like oh what is it what is it and they'll be like oh it's that so to give it its full title, this is the Scottish Parliamentary Committee um, that is uh, holding an inquiry into the handling of Scottish government harassment complaints. 
I think it got the title almost right, if not so maybe jazzy. a word or two. So wrong. like what an exciting title. It's otherwise known or has been commonly known in the newspapers as the Salmond Inquiry, even though technically it's not anything to do with it or it shouldn't have much to do with him. It's really all about the handling of um, the the complaints that were made against him, um, that he successfully um, took the, the government to court um, about in terms of the the process he took the court uh, he took the government to um, a judicial review and um, he got his legal costs paid for because the government withdrew their opposition to it because they realized that they'd um, not done something quite right so he he in this process has put forward a piece of evidence uh, which is probably the most recent bit of drama and this piece of evidence basically, um, makes a series of complaints at different parties. So I suppose the first party he complains about is the First Minister. He says that she uh, lied to Parliament and he says that she met with him when she says that she didn't and that there was a conflict between was it party business or Scottish government business. The second person he has a go at is the Lord Advocate, so in the Crown Office, and he says that the Crown Office deliberately withheld information that prejudiced both his case and is still prejudicing this inquiry now it's a bit confusing the third person he has a go at is nicola sturgeon's chief of staff who he actually uh, no the third person he has a go at are people from nicola sturgeon's office uh who he doesn't say who they are and implies that they deliberately leaked um although he has no evidence of this that they deliberately leaked uh bits of the story to the sunday post and then the fourth person, whew, there's a lot of people to have a go at, right? There's the fourth person he's having a go at is that is Leslie Evans, who is the permanent secretary of the Scottish um, government. So she is the top civil servant. And he basically says that she mishandled the process and that, in fact, she mishandled it in a way deliberately. This is where the conspiracy stuff starts coming in, deliberately to disadvantage him and to try and get him Um during the during the the case and so he 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 sort of leads this attack on all all four of these people in this document and not long after that and i suppose what's challenging here is that he says that all the he implies everything's very implied with everything he says which is very frustrating well is it frustrating frustrating or is that a deliberate tactic it's probably a deliberate tactic to not provide any evidence because one of our previous guests um james McEnany. Um, made a, a very good analogy that it read as though one it read as one of those essays that English teachers would read and be really annoyed that someone hadn't done a good enough job with. It, but it's totally, and it, it's because it doesn't back up what he's saying, and it's lots of things like everyone knows, and it is common sense, which you know is not, but it's trying to, to make people who read it agree with him. Now. The he puts forward in this effectively that this is a grand conspiracy within the Scottish system to now this is what I always get a bit confused at to do what I suppose his ultimate thing is to I don't know embarrass him hold him to account to justice but also he would say to and he has said in his evidence to unlawfully imprison imprison well not unlawfully but to imprison him uh, which is obviously very dramatic now you. Most sensible people will read this stuff and go, I think that you are conflating 
things together and activities mm-hmm. that took place and creating a story, which I think like a lot of Alex Salmon's stories places him right at the center <laughs> of everything. But then the Crown Office has went and done something which has caused an awful lot of consternation in that they asked for a do- his evidence to be redacted after it was published. Mm. And um, this has brought up all sorts of issues within Which the parliament. Which couldn't have put more of a spotlight on the bits they wanted redacted. Well, I, I I read it before it was redacted. Then I was like, I don't know which bits they were redacted. Like, I need to go <laughs> figure it out. And luckily, the Daily Mail had an image of it before and an image of it after. So you knew exactly what they'd redacted. I, I, and, I do think that they, the parliament maybe should have listened to the legal advice that they'd got and not been playing party politics um on the publication of it that that would have saved um saved the the this embarrassment on the committee's part i think i'm kind of wanting to stay away from the party politics part like because i think that for for me like there, there clearly is partisan party politics taking place and there's clearly is attempts by some people to you know to get mm. have a got yet the first minister and i get that but i suppose for me, the, the, the questions are more of constitutional nature, because what this has exposed is that the, it, I say exposed like it was a secret, but it's, I don't think it was common knowledge that it, like your average person in the street knew it, is that the person who is the lead prosecutor of this country, who is responsible for prosecutions, criminal and civil, um, is also the person who is responsible for providing the government its legal advice and that the independent prosecution service or the, the prosecutor fiscal, the crown office as it is called. Um, and I get a bit confused about that where the prosecutor fiscal is part of the crown office or if it is like in just Scot- another name. In Scotland it is part of the crown office. So it's part the, crown, of the crown, o- crown office and prosecutor fiscal service. But the, but the crown office is also a Scottish government ministry officially. So you have this really tricky situation. This is again what Alex Salmon tries to put forward that effectively he's arguing that there is corruption at this level and that the first minister has unduly used her influence on the Lord Advocate to make the Lord Advocate then redact this document. But as as we saw today, when, when, you know, I I think it has been a bit of a mess. Um, I was worried when um, I saw today that Jackie Bailey had got a, urgent question i was worried that they would send some minister up to speak about it um thankfully james wolf um the lord advocate was attended parliament dancer and he was quite unequivocal about the fact that this is someone else's job within the crown office um he was he only knew about a letter going to the parliament after it had been sent and it was given to him as a as a note and before that the process is internally um, are completely independent of him. So, so I, I think that that I hope that is the case. But I think the very fact that we've gotten to this point shows that we need to separate the functions out. That we but should, as have a, James Will said in Parliament today, in the history of the Scottish law officers, um, they've always um, attended cabinet of either the UK government or the Scottish government um, to provide legal advice and there's never been an issue and actually so, what it feels like to me is there's one person that just can't be um, just can't take responsibility for his actions of which he personally said um were not befitting of um of him or his previously held office um and th- he wrote in his um evidence that nobody had said i resign yet but one person hasn't said i'm sorry yet 
Well, look, I'm I'm in no way I I I deliberately want to take these two things separately, partly because I completely agree with everything you just said there, Nathan, and I think that that a lot of this is clearly driven by the ego um, and wow, well, just the massive ego of one individual who is out what it feels like is out for revenge, um, and it's a very undignified revenge because he actually won his legal case. So I think th there's definitely an element of that. And, it, and wouldn't it be ironic if the SNP and the independence movement was dragged down by the person who previously had done so much to rehabilitate it in the Scottish public mind. But I do think that that is a separate issue that, and we shouldn't conflate the things together of the independence of this, this function within the Scottish political system. And that actually, if we need to get ourselves a different way of doing this, because I think having someone who is responsible for the legal advice of the government and is potentially also responsible for the prosecution of members of that government, theoretically, is a conflict of interest that we could resolve. Because we, we mentioned this last week, that mm, the Scottish system shouldn't be stuck in aspect and we can create new and better and more democratic systems in the future. Well, let's bring up a constitutional expert at some point. Annie Gunnar Logan Smith. But yes, Annie is Annie. Annie did you call her Annie Gunnar Logan Smith? Yeah, who's Smith? Who's Smith? I don't know who that is. How many more names uh, can I collect? I quite like it though, Annie. Maybe you should take it. Annie Gunnar Logan. I, I once said to uh, a government minister, no less, whose blushes I shall spare for the time being, um, about honours, the honours system. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I decided that the, the name Annie Gunnar Logan could only be improved by the addition of Dame at the front <laughs> of it. <laughs> and that if anybody ever wanted to give me an honour, then that would probably be the only one I would accept. But hang on a minute, because I want to, I want to link your very fascinating discussion of this issue with the one that we had before and ask you guys, do you think that this whole uh, incident um, or situation is going to influence how people vote. Um, because, you know, I, what, I'm, what I'm reading is that there is very little of what they call, you know, the cutting through uh, to the electorate. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's taking up a lot of airtime. Um, and I, I'm just not sure whether it's actually that, again, that important to the voting public, but I'm, I'd be interested in your views on that. I think you're, the, the question is the right one, Annie, and I think the, the answer is no. It doesn't cut through. Nobody, um, nobody cares about the process. Um, it may. I think people might go. That looks like politicians being politicians and getting things wrong and creating a mess. And you know, talk about the inquiry. I talk about the 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 process. Everything like that. Um, but fundamentally what we see in poll after poll, it would be interesting to see a poll after this last week, actually. I mean, it's tomorrow, um, and Ipsos Mori polls coming it'll, tomorrow. It'll be interesting to see what that's done. Um, but we know from all of this, you know, almost SNP Civil War story that's that's got arms and legs, that none of it is none of it is cutting through because people trust and have respect for Nicola Sturgeon. So uh, my answer is is slightly different. I actually agree that that people's views of Nicola Sturgeon are pretty solid. The the only thing that I think might happen is, and I and I don't think people are following the details of the story, frankly, because they're really bloody complicated, 
and it gets really difficult really quick even for geeks like us like it suddenly becomes wait who's that what do they do wait what powers do they have how does this work what is a law officer what is the procurator fiscal you know it becomes very much it becomes complicated very quickly but i but i do think one of the things that might happen and that i think if i was nicholas sturgeon i would be becoming very weary of is the sort of like the john major s sleaze element that begins to begins to be applied to things when you know, none of the none of the individual stories have big significant cut through, but you add them all up together and in aggregate, it sort of taint it, it sort of tints or taints sort of the feelings about your government and about your your way of doing things. And I think that is a potential danger. Also amplified because it's a government that's been in power for so long, and I think it happens to all governments that have been in power for a long time. Mm. Um, and I think one of the challenges for Nicola Sturgeon is that normally one of the ways for a party or a government who has had that for a while to try and flip it while still staying in power is a new leader. But then who would that be? Uh, yeah, that is an interesting question. And perhaps we'll ask one of our election special guests uh, in, in April um, who might be the next leader, but I don't think there's any appetite um, within the SNP or the uh, general public for there to be a different leader of the, the SMB. I, I would agree. I would agree. But uh, just before we end on this thing, you know, there's a couple of other things that we only need to keep an eye out for. I suppose the next big one is that on Friday, Alex Salmon will be going, he said that he's now going to go and give evidence to the committee. That will be really, really interesting. I think when the findings of this committee are published, whenever that is, I think it will be, I think the person... I think there's going to be some scalps and I think the person most likely to be scalped is Leslie Evans, the, um, the permanent secretary of the government, because I think that from the evidence that I've seen, I do think the process was potentially flawed. And I well, think, I don't is... think, I don't think there's an, a debate about that. Ultimately the process led to the, the public purse being charged you know nearly a million pounds now yeah. i don't i don't i think there does need to be some accountability about how that process that was what i hope this inquiry from the committee would would get into but actually it feels to me like um it's it's done more about you know trying to pit um two people against each other than actually get down to this process level which was was the role of it yeah, and and I think I think you're I think you're right, and I think that when it comes down to it, that's nearly a million pounds of public money, and the decision of how the dis, a lot of the decisions seem to be ending up at her door, um, and so I you know if we're making guesses, I'm thinking that that's what might happen, but then she's not got long left on her contract; it finishes in July next year, I think. So well, we will be watching this space and come back with an update next week, bro. Let's um, take a break. Yes, let's take a break. And we'll be coming back after this short interlude, uh, musical interlude. We're not yet uh, taking advertising requests, um, but do feel free to email us if you'd like yeah, to advertise. We are taking requests. That's <laughs> yeah. quite correct. If you want to request some advertising, we will like <laughs> we, we would gladly advertise on the podcast, but um, we'll take a short musical interlude and be back with our big question on whether the social care review um, did what it was, it, what we hoped it would achieve. See you in a minute.
Hello and welcome back to A New Nation, discussing the ideas that matter. My name is Nick Ward and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Sparling, and our wonderful guest star, Annie Gunner-Logan, not Smith, just Annie Gunner-Logan. That shouldn't a- be, hopefully, Dame Annie Gunner-Logan. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I picked up on that, that that's what she wanted, so we'll get the nomination for out. Um, dame, I, what, what is the thing that you put after your name if you get a Dame, or do you just put Dame? Oh, well, no. It's before, isn't it? Yeah. There is a thing. You call yourself Dame Annie Gunner Logan. But it's not like Dame Annie Gunner Logan OBE. No, because an OBE is a different honour, which I would not accept. <laughs> would you not? Are you one of those people that would, because it's not a Damehood? <laughs> Only a Damehood or bust. That's yeah. it. So, Listen, Lizzie. Okay, I'm set out at my stall and it's Damehood or nothing. A right? Damehood is when you put CBE after your name. Oh, no, what does CBE stand for? Commander, something completely oh, different. Right. Some people have CBEs that become dames. Then, anyway, let, we're getting into um, the whole. I'd like to world. be a lord. Oh, be a lord. It's, it's not SNP members aren't allowed to be members of the House of Lords. Lucky I'm not in the SNP then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the Labour Party gravy train. I'm sure you'll get a lordship soon enough. No? How dare you, sir? How <laughs> but, absolutely dare you? <laughs> Right. But let's anyway, get... <laughs> we are here for the pur- The whole purpose of this extra long podcast episode um, is to talk about the social care review, and we're delighted that Annie has joined us again. You were on our podcast a couple of months ago when the um, review was first announced, and we talked about what you hoped to achieve. Quite simply, did it achieve what you wanted it to? Yes. <gasps> Shock, because you weren't sure that it was going to. No, um, and I, uh, I have said this to various colleagues who were involved in it, you know, and put my hands up and said, I, you know, there was a degree of skepticism, not not cynicism. I think that would have been too strong, uh, but there was a degree of skepticism uh, about the timing of it, uh, the very very rapid pace of it. Uh, the fact that nobody involved was a kind of you know a, a specialist. Um, and, so fast, it was and, so and, yeah, and and, pe- and we were all kind of scratching our heads about that a little bit. But uh, I am absolutely happy to put my hands up and say that that was unfounded. Um, and what Derek Feely and his colleagues did, I think, was uh, that they did what they said they would do in not repeating all of the research and analysis that is out there that's already been done, of which there is uh, mountains, um, but they took it into consideration. And the other thing that they did uh, was to have a very extensive engagement with people who rely on social care uh, and family carers, you know, in a very, very significant way. But more than any of that, they actually listened to what they said. Um, you know, that the, because we've had a number of processes where people say things and actually, you know, you don't necessarily see that reflected in what comes out at the end. So what Derek Feely did was he wrote, he wrote to all of us who'd had some kind of engagement with the review, um, just a short note kind of saying, well, and here's my report and thank you very much. Um, and at the end of it, he said, and I hope you see yourself in it. Um, and certainly from the point of view of my organisation, the answer was, yes, we do. Uh, yes, we absolutely see ourselves uh, in this. Um, now, you know, I, I said to the 
parliamentary committee, the health and sport committee yesterday morning, you know, that with me, nothing is, is ever a complete bed of roses. So there are some, <laughs> <laughs> there are some little bits that I kind of want to uh, pick apart and have another look at and again, scratch my head about, but, you know, overall, um, it was it was a terrific kind of job, and the and the and the best thing it did, I think, was you know as a result of putting people front and center of the review process, the fundamental recommendation is to put people front and center of their own support, um, and we've been talking about that since the year dot. <laughs> Um, just, and, and what and what Feely did was identify the, the kind of biggest issue in all of this, which is what he referred to as the implementation gap. Um, and, and this reflects everything that, that I've been saying uh, for years, you know, that the legislation is all in place, the policy is in place, the guidance says the right things, the training has been rolled out, and yet, and yet we still cannot seem to implement it. And so he kind of puts his finger right onto that. Um, and a lot of the recommendations are about how you start to unlock that. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, me personally and, and the organisation I represent and all of the organisations behind it, on the whole, you know, really, really uh, big thumbs up for the whole thing. It seemed to be a really good use of the fair work principles in terms of, you know, almost without national, without quite nationalising something, implementing recommendations about things like a, a, a good standard of minimum wage, so the, the real living wage as opposed to the, the minimum wage, uh, not using zero-hours contracts, um, you know, that contractual stability for employees um, and also the ability to unionise, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. So I think that's, it seems to me like the first time that the government's really using its weight to almost use procurement legislation, I guess it would be, to, to get those demands in to em, em, employment and, and benefit employees. Because up until now, it's been a pledge that businesses take, whether they want to or not. Well, yeah, kind of yes and no, I think. Um, the, the, what, what the Feely Review does is it recommends full implementation of a, a previous set of recommendations that landed in 2019. That's the Fair Work Convention report on social care that again, you know, sat there and never got implemented. Um, so what he's saying is, I'm not gonna do this all again because it's all there, you know, now we need to get on with it. <laughs> um, and it, interesting that you raised the kind of nationalization point because there was a, a, a kind of um, a view, especially from uh, the Labour Party, I think, or certain parts of the Labour Party and the trade unions, that the only way that you could actually kind of achieve decent terms and conditions for people would be to nationalize. The care service and bring everything back into kind of national ownership um, and, and we were very strong on, on saying that you know you don't have to do that there are other ways that you can do that um, and, and that's through a very robust implementation of fair work principles as you say but the interesting thing Nathan is not to do it through procurement because procurement has been actually driving it mm. so um, <laughs> I mean procurement has been driving the anti-fair work <laughs> agenda mm. so procurement is the wrong uh, process and mechanism to use for this completely and again that's kind of one of the, the biggest things that I'm pleased to see in the report because it says you know we need to find a better way of doing this you know which isn't about um, competitive tendering and, is, and isn't about very kind of rigid application of procurement regulations but we get together and we do something much more collaborative uh, but it, it absolutely crucially you have a, because it's a national care service you accept national 
national standards for things like terms and conditions and pay of staff. So we don't have all this kind of arguing the toss and negotiations about that locally, uh, because that's a given before you even actually start talking about, you know, who, how to select providers and who does what. There is no negotiation about that. You know, that is the standard and everybody has to stick to it. So it's brilliant. So just for that, I think that, that was great. So just for those who are not in the social care sector, so the the main the main findings of the review, I'll just run through them very quickly. Like, and I'll probably miss one out. So please do, Annie. Say you've forgotten this one. Um, but the main for, for me, the main takeaways were that they want to establish a national care service, um, and that what that means is that there will be um, a set of standards of both paying conditions, but also expectations of how people will work together across the board. Um, they want this pay this national service to not be at local authority level, but to be integrated joint health board level. And they want to create a minister for social care who will directly give the budget for social care to these integrated joint boards who will then spend it on social care. So they're effectively breaking the link um, at a local authority level between the person that procures the social care and the person that uh, delivers the social care. So they're, they're sort of separating that out. They want to make sure that the fair work review is all is all um, done and that we raise standards. And there's also quite a lot of discussion, as you said, Annie, about the representation of people with lived experience and their voices. I think particularly part of that is that uh, uh, when I was reading it, a really strong emphasis came through about the value of unpaid carers and their development and support and making sure their voices are heard, which is which is really important. And I suppose he puts it, Derek Feely, puts this all within a sort of framework of an equivalence. So he's saying that we want a, a sort of equivalence of esteem and of parity of esteem, esteem between a national care service and a national health service. But we can do that without the mass nationalization of all of these different organizations. Have I missed anything out there that you think... No, that's that, that. That's about the gist of it. Um, I mean, the, the parity of esteem bit is very central to the to the review, I think. Um, and as for the nationalisation, uh, he he is very very clear that there is absolutely no argument for that that relies in any way on service quality. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm pleased as punch about what he did say because he identified the third sector, mm. i.e., charities involved in social care, very specifically as being uh, the highest quality. So the idea, yeah, woohoo. <laughs> so you know, the idea that we would kind of remove responsibility for delivery from these high quality organizations and pass them uh, to you know publicly owned uh, into publicly owned status when the rec the track record of public sector providers is not as good just didn't make any sense at all. So it, it, I think it's really kind of good that he's put that one to bed because you know I think the interpretation of what a national care service meant in in the in many people's minds what was that you know a yeah. publicly owned publicly controlled um, uh, body much like the NHS kind of very top down but what, what I guess one thing that you that you might have missed out there Nick is yes there'll be a minister there'll also be a chief executive of the national care service mm. and the chief executive will be accountable to a board and the board of the national care service will be inclusive of people who use services and unpaid carers mm. <laughs> as well as the whole kind of panoply of you know professionals and all the rest of it so if you like you've got the IJB the integrated joint board at local level which also includes all those people 
uh, and you replicate that at a national level so that it's much more collaborative and inclusive. Um, and the other really important thing about it is that the integrated joint boards become uh, the service users who are on it and the families and the unpaid carer representatives who are on it also have parity of esteem with their statutory colleagues who are on it. Because up until now, the only people who have a, who have a vote on the integrated joint board are the people who are there from councils and the people who are there from the NHS and everybody else is kind of like a bit of a spectator. So the proposal is that you equalize all of that. Uh, so, and everybody has a vote. So everybody has, has their kind of, everybody is invested with some kind of authority to decide what happens next. And I think that is true. I mean, we've been asking for that for years. Um, so it's really good to see that as well. It's, very, it's really exciting. I think I think I, I was personally surprised with the radicalism in some respects of mm -hmm. the proposals, but it felt like a radicalism that looked at the, the systems and structures in place and said, well, actually, this is how we can start to fix them rather yeah. than just scrapping everything. But wanna, let's get to the gossip, though, Annie, because <laughs> the gossip is, is that local councils are going raj and they don't like well, it. Cosla said something Cosla. interesting about how... Surprise. They want. They wanted. They how they, it needed to take in, on board outcomes for people, um, or something strange that I saw someone say. It's the first time they'd heard Cosla uh, care about the outcomes for people <laughs> receiving services. Well, you you may say that now that I couldn't possibly comment, but I mean certainly, Cosla uh, were very very fast out of the traps um, after the publication of the review to say that they felt um, that the, the kind of removal of responsibility and accountability from local authorities was a backward step. Um, and and from, what, from what I have read uh, from their statements on social media and their press releases is that their view is that actually if, if they just had the appropriate funding, they could do a lot of this already. Um, and, and I heard one local government figure uh, describe this as a, a kind of football analogy. So you have a manager who's sort of starved of funds and can't buy the good players and therefore gets bad results and then the manager gets sacked. <laughs> and then a new manager comes in and they give them all the resources the old manager didn't have and then suddenly they're a success. Now, you know, I genuinely do not think this is about money alone. Of course, it's about money. And we all know that local authorities are cash strapped and we know that social care could do with more investment. But again, because I am, uh, and this is the second time I've said this on your podcast today, indescribably ancient, <laughs> I can remember the days when social care, relatively speaking, was awash with money. But you know what? We had all these same problems then. We had all these same problems. It's, it's not only about the money it's about systems um you know Derek Feely uh, reproduced in his report um something that one of my colleagues uh, put in our, in our submission around commissioning which was you know every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it does yes. <laughs> so you know if if we really want to see change in social care it's systems change we have to see uh, just kind of chucking more money into a system that doesn't work is uh, is grossly irresponsible in my view so um you know i kind of sympathize uh, with cosa in a way because when when you look at this you know you could interpret this as 
um, a, a bit of an assault, if you like, on the, the powers and controls uh, that local authorities have. You know, it's taking away from them a very significant chunk of their responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that is a completely different question. You know, what we're talking about here is what is going to achieve really good social care for people. And if that's what's going to achieve it, then that's what we're going to do. Um, so, you know, the, the question about whether this is an assault on local democracy or whatever is, 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 is a completely separate question that needs to be considered separately. But, but also it's, it's really interesting because you use the word accountability and yeah. the, the people that I work, like our organization and the people that they represent would say what accountability because yeah. right now people don't have redress, they don't have the support that they need and they, the worst thing is they are having to fight the people who are also responsible for their care to get it. So you're setting up these really weird unhealthy relationships which I just think you know, the thing that pleased me most, in fact, was the creation of this new structure, which yeah. hopefully will allow people to have more say and to be much more focused on the needs of the users of these services, yeah. rather than the, the, you know, the budget fights between the NHS and the local council about how much each are going to put in and what that's going to be. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think it's really progressive. One thing I would say, which is a risk, uh, well, actually, do you think this is a risk? One of the risks is that we know that health and social care partnerships and their implementations have been varied across the country. And we know that we have some really high performing HSCPs and we know that we've got some really uh, dodgy ones, not dodgy, dodgy is the wrong word, but underperforming ones um, that, that need more support. Um, we're creating a new layer where, you know, our integrated joint boards going to be up to this task. Um, or are we going to have to think really carefully about how we support them to get up to this, to the ability to do this? Well, we, 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 all, we always should have been supporting them to do that, I think. Um, but what, what, the, what this doesn't do is bring about some kind of massive structural change where you're kind of creating new bodies. You know, the, 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 this is about try, making the existing system work better. Mm. So you're kind of moving responsibilities and accountabilities between bodies that already exist rather than scrapping them and starting again. Um, and for me, the accountability question really kind of lies in that streamlining of accountability up to ministers. I mean, if, if you want the gossip, you know, ministers will tell you that they feel absolutely accountable in the public eye for social care mm. <laughs> no question about that and yet they do not have the kind of levers no of levers. responsibility and control down the way so you know in the third sector we kind of understand that because having responsibility without having any authority is not a place anybody ever wants to be so what i think what these reforms are trying to do is to give the authority to the people who have the responsibility you know right down the chain uh, and back up again. Uh, and, and, and the brilliant thing about it is that the whole thing then has to be centered on um, human rights, on self-directed support, on collaboration rather than competition, on prevention rather than crisis response. And that is what will drive the whole thing. Um, so th th I, I think we need to kind of unpick this a little bit. And what we're kind of really quite keen to do is work with uh, some of our statutory partners just to kind of fill in the gaps in the report a little bit 
Um, because you know how is this going to work wait a minute if you get that responsibility then who's going to take that on and who's (laughs) going to do this bit and and so if we don't if we don't do it somebody else come and do that for us so I see this as being uh, an entirely kind of collaborative exercise in the implementation of the review not just in the running of the system that it will build one thing that we couldn't figure out how it would work was that I'm sure I'm sure like many third sector people you got the report you read through it you start circling things you get together you'd be like what do you think is um the talk about the the recruitment retention and development of the social care workforce yeah. and they talk about creating an agency to do that and I suppose we were a bit like what will they do our recruitment for us like in some ways that's great because recruitment is hard work um, but uh, we were a bit like, how is that? I, I can't think of an organization that does that necessarily. I'm, or maybe I'm overthinking what they would do. Because the, the closest we could get to sort of an analogy is like the General Teaching Council has mm-hmm. a responsibility to make sure that enough people are being trained. They have a responsibility to make sure there are development opportunities for teachers and there are meetings setting bars. So are we seeing that we're just going to create a sort of general teaching council for social care workers? Well, you know, you've got the social services council already. Well, that's true. Um, and, I, I was... and, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't come out of this uh, review with an entirely clean bill of health, I have to say, you know, there's some there's there's some changes that are being proposed there. But the, uh, this bit, Nick, is another one, I think, that we need to just kind of uh, start to unpick a little bit. Um, the, the other the other one uh, that we're kind of interested in is this um, proposal that we have the application of improvement science to social care. Mm. You know, so uh, and that that's that's something that's been uh, used within the NHS uh, to great effect. You know, the patient safety program quoted in the review, uh, but a lot of that kind of improvement science is based on kind of clinical measurement of outcomes, which is really kind of not the same (laughs) as social care so um, that's another one where it kind of reads very well and you think oh this sounds really exciting and then you think well wait a minute how's that going to work but you know our our position on it and my position on it is rather than just kind of nitpick and say oh I don't understand how that works you know we say well let's 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 see what it means let's get together and figure this out So you know, really, I'm, 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 and it's, it's, it's quite an interesting position for me to be in because I am usually the cold shower. Uh, <laughs> well, I certainly wasn't expecting. Yeah, I, I am yes. usually the cold shower applied to any initiative you like to think. You know, and in a way, that's my job because you know a policy uh, uh, is being developed, and my job is to pull it to pieces and subject it to some real kind of robust critical challenge um you know always always with the uh with the objective of improving it i have to say rather than just kind of destroying it um and 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 we will do the same with this one but actually the raw material uh is is kind of pretty inspiring (laughs) from the off Um, i mean there are all kinds of questions about how it's going to work in practice there are all kinds of questions about how it links into some of the stuff that the social renewal advisory board talked about you know how do we link this in with poverty with homelessness um you know and 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 some of that is kind of missing again uh but it's it's honestly it's when i was when i was looking at it the the main thing i felt was relief you know what huge relief that somebody has 
firstly listened and secondly actually understood mm. what the problems are here um, and the other really interesting thing about it is that all of the nearly all of the recommendations in there rely on a collaborative approach to make things better you know it's like we're going to have a national improvement program um, for commissioning and procurement he's not saying you're going to stop doing this set of processes and you're going to do these instead <laughs> you know yes by all means stop these processes and what we do next we are going to decide together uh, and that is that is really quite new to me <laughs> and that makes it unlike uh, other reviews uh, with the exception I would say of the promise um, which of course is about children in the care system where where there are lots and lots of resonances um, so bringing those two together for a start is going to be great but I'm, I'm, I'm really optimistic about it well, I was not expecting that. You're not. I was. I knew. I knew it went down very well. But I'm glad. Well, yeah. I guess I, I sort of knew it went down well. I guess I'm look, looking back to when we had our conversation a couple of months ago, um, and I couldn't have foreseen then that you would have had such a big smile on your face about. Well, you this. know me neither. And that's like I say, I put my hands up and say, uh, you know, I was, I was a little bit. <laughs> a little bit mm. skeptical about this um but i uh, you know i i, I take my hat off to him i think he's done a brilliant job really we did have one question and from our audience not specifically oh, yeah. about the review but um is there any one thing that we can do to support care home residents and help with isolation just if you've got well that. we kind of talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the um of tonight's session didn't we yeah. really i think that you know the guidance on family contact is is really really going to help uh there absolutely no question about it great well we'll make sure that our question asker gets uh, gets to hear the first part of our podcast um that I, I guess wraps us up quite nicely in in terms of the conversation on um on social care um you, final... could always, you could always um i think you could always ask me back in six months where i uh, you know i've become kind of very dejected and disappointed <laughs> about how nothing has happened and it's <laughs> but i really well, don't if, think well so if, if nick had his way <laughs> and the election gets delayed then you would be back here in six months with having nothing having happened uh, but hopefully we won't be in that situation but let's get you in the diary for in six months time and, see that is <laughs> and then you and then you can say i told you so <laughs> <laughs> never um before you go annie um yes. last time you recommended um to our listeners a lovely french netflix um series um is there anything that you have to recommend for our lovely listeners um, well, I've got an anti-recommendation for you. Uh, and this is something that I would recommend that you do not watch. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not entirely unconnected to the conversation we've had this evening. It's a film with Rosamund Pike and it's called I Care A Lot. Uh, and it's set in America. This and, is the legal guardianship. Yeah, Rosamund yeah. Pike plays a legal guardian of... of um, well, she's very evil. <laughs> what, can I, what can I say? Uh, her, her shtick is that she uh, targets what she calls uh, cherries. So these are very, very wealthy, older people. And she persuades their doctors to put them in care and make her their legal guardian, whereupon she kind of raids all of their, uh, their resources um, while they are kind of locked up in secure 
accommodation. Um, and right, so that's not the worst thing about it. Okay, uh, the worst thing about it is that these older people that are and are simply a plot device for what happens next, where you meet a, another bunch of characters who oppose what she's doing. And, and then it becomes this kind of very super violent, I mean, you know, it's kind of entertaining, thrilling, etc. you know, kiss, kiss, bang, bang, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what I found so deeply abhorrent and offensive about it is that the, the plight of all these people locked away in care, you never see them again. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's trying to challenge the system. It all becomes this very kind of personal drama about this very ambitious, evil woman and who's going to finally bring her down. Um, but the, the thing is, nobody brings about nobody brings down the system because nobody cares. <laughs> and it just Some ways really, it's quite realistic. It's, <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope yeah. not. I mean, I, I did get a little message because I put this on Twitter and I got a message afterwards saying, well, this is inspired by real life events in America. You know, this is actually what happens in America. And I don't doubt that for a second. Mm. But, you know, for me, that does not make for a good entertaining film. Um, I just I just thought it was utterly vile. So boycott it, everybody. Surprise, so surprisingly, <laughs> but I watched Rosamund Pike on Graham Norton uh, at the weekend. And I was going to say on the podcast today that because of what we've been talking about, I was going to go and watch that. But oh. now, and now I'm now I don't think I'm so keen. Well, look, you know, the acting is great, the cinematography is brilliant, the production values are sharp, you know, all that stuff. So if you if you if you want a good romp, you know, it's a good romp. Um, but you know, the, the underlying premise of it is that nobody gives, pardon, you said shit already, Nick, so I'm going to. Nobody gives a shit about these old people, and all they are is a plot device for other people's dramas. Mm. And I thought it was appalling. <laughs> so there you go. That's my anti-recommendation for you. What are you recommending, Nick? I'm recommending Trump Takes on the World. Uh, it's great, isn't it? Oh, it's so good. Part one and part two. Did I not one. recommend that a couple of podcasts ago? Oh, did you? Yeah, I think I did. Oh, <laughs> I've got another recommendation. Well, what I would just say to add to Nathan's recommendation is that it really gives you an insight look into like what they're actually doing at the highest level of world politics. Yeah. And it's exactly the same as isn't in council meetings in 2015. Like, it's just people in a room trying to make stuff work, arguing. It's such an insight into how these things work and what you think are big formal processes to get things agreed. And actually it ends up, you know, the, the thing that really sticks to me is in one of the episodes, Donald Trump is at a, a, a a thing in Canada, a summit in Canada, a G7 summit or something. And um, and all of the leaders are out of their seats, literally surrounding him, trying to stop him from leaving and to agree the the wording of the, you know, mm. of the, what, the communication and stuff. And, um, and at some point he goes, uh, Michelle, Michelle Barney, where is Michelle? You can hear him shout. And Michelle Barney is just sitting there like in a huff. And he, he just shouts over, I'm here, I'm here, Donald. I'm not taking part in this farce. And it's just, it's just like, oh, oh. 
it's great so i would yeah. recommend that it's think think the final episode's on thursday night which is it's really good. so well done and the yeah. access that they've had to put it together oh. um and the people, very very good the people that very they've good. got on it is amazing i was going to recommend i think i might have recommended this before but i'm now five series into madam secretary um <laughs> And what at the end, on? what's it on? Well, the first three you've got to buy on Amazon Prime, <gasps> and then series four, five, and six are on Now TV, which I have a subscription to, so it's free. Um, but I was shocked, aghast, at the end of series four, where the Secretary of State walks into her office and is, is um, and her assistant says, "Oh, I hope you don't mind. I've let them in." Um, and she's like, she said, oh, it's fine. It's their office too. And I was like, who could it be? And in she walks and there's Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright and another Secretary of State, probably, um, I don't know who, who another one would have been, um, but I didn't recognize him. What, the real people? The real people were there, like advising the fictional Secretary of State about what to say in this big speech. And I, it was, oh, it was such a great bit of telly. So good. That's pretty cool. That Such a geeky cool. thing as well to be like. Cool. It, it it felt very natural too. Like it didn't feel like Hillary was uh, was was acting. Madeleine Albright has been in it um, before. Um, she's 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 appeared a couple of times. Um, but Madeleine Albright is that her name? Madeleine, um, yeah, yeah, Madeleine <laughs> Albright, yeah. Um, but Hillary, seeing Hillary Clinton there was just so much fun. Magic. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this evening. Um, thank you so much to our very special guest, Annie Gunner Logan, Dame. That's Dame Annie Gunner Logan. <laughs> right, Who will be back <laughs> from now on? Absolutely. Um, what's that song about dames? If she going to have a dame, what's that? There is nothing like a dame. There is nothing like nothing a dame. in the world. world. There we go. Perfect. There is nothing you can name that is anything like a dame. Woo, woo. This is great. Well, that's uh, the episode, that's what the podcast will be called now. <laughs> um, so thank you for that, and that I think is our little clip that we'll be uh, sharing on <laughs> on social media. Yes, we should definitely <laughs> share that on social media. What have I done? Uh, thank you very much Annie we'll see you again in six months uh, to to find out whether or not to um, taste my salty tears (laughs) (laughs) when it all goes wrong and some big news next week we will be joined by um, the wonderful Matt Ford um, who will be a guest on our podcast Um, a proper famous person I know you're not proper famous Annie but like oof um, well, I tell you, if 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 I find out you're paying him, I'm coming back. <laughs> Mate, we don't even pay ourselves. <laughs> we, don't, we, we don't pay ourselves, um, and as you saw with our technology earlier, we don't pay for that either. <laughs> um, but we will be joined by Matt Ford, and really ramping up to our election season special. So I want the election to go ahead because we put a lot of planning into this election special. Is that why season. you've been arguing so much? For it? <laughs> because it will mess up our planning. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, if you're if you're if you've got Matt Ford on, you can tell him that I went to see him at the fringe and he did it, he did a joke about Jeremy Corbyn. And some 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 guy at the back who was obviously a Corbyn fan, you know, kind of did a bit of a heckle. And oh Matt Ford, boom, he he turned into the anti-heckling maestro instantly and just and eventually this guy got up and left. 
it was Brexit pursued by a beer? Was it that show? Was it the Brexit pursued by a beer show? Uh, No, it was the year before that. Well, I can't remember what the show was called, but we're super excited to have him on. So we will be. um, He did a good Trump impression as well. Yeah, I'm hoping you'll do the Trump impression on the podcast next week. <laughs> uh, but thank you for tuning in, everyone, and we will see you all again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.